You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. And here we are with episode 19 of Something Rather Than Nothing. Um, a great episode um, chatting with Ana del Rocio, uh, who is the executive director of Oregon Futures Lab. Uh, just lovely to talk to uh, about philosophy, uh, mothering, uh, politics, language, music, uh, the process of writing, the conditions of writing. Um, it was it was a great pleasure uh, to chat with 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 Anna. I think you'll really love her answers to uh, some some of the big questions. What is art, and especially um, uh, 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 the big question of why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, without further ado, I hope you really enjoy episode nineteen of Something Rather Than Nothing with uh, Anna Del Rocio. We're here on Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and we have a guest, uh, Anna Del Rocio, uh, Rocio and um, she is the um, executive director of Oregon Futures Lab, and we're recording here in uh, Portland, Oregon. And uh, Anna, I just want to invite you to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Uh, Anna has a background in philosophy from uh, USC and some work at uh, UC um, Berkeley. She's also uh, been involved uh, in, in politics and, of course, her work with the Oregon Futures Lab. Um, but before we get into any of the bigger questions, um, Anna, what were you like uh, as, as a young child? As a young child? Um, from what I remember, I was really shy. Um, I was that small and reserved a student that had a lot of stuff going on internally. I was always thinking and observing, but I didn't speak very much. Um, I think probably some of that had to do with the, the language. So I was in between English dominant and Spanish dominant worlds at home and at school. Um, I think I remember um, wanting to spend a lot of time with my grandparents. I was really um, close with my grandfather and I liked school but not as much as I liked being at home. I was a homebody as a child. Um, and what else can I remember? Um, Abuela and abuelo are important. Yes, yes they are, especially in my culture. Um, I had two little sisters. So I was the eldest and had some of that like extra responsibility piece where I was looking after them, and um, I'm the eldest of all my cousins as well, so a lot of that, that caretaking um, as a child. Yeah, that's what I can remember. So um, you've, you've shown a lot of interest in art, and uh, part, of the, part of my connection in reaching out to you um, has to do with uh, some, some of your uh, very powerful writing uh, that you've Thank done. You. But in general, what, type of, uh, what types or styles of art uh, attract you as... Uh, you know, as an observer of art? Um, I've always been super connected with music. Um, as a young girl, I remember I would 
just plop down and listen to my grandparents' records over and over and over. Music probably is the art form that I'm most drawn to um, in all styles of music. I'm a classically trained flautist. I picked up the flute in middle school. Um, I actually started college as a music major um, and switched over, but I really am drawn to, to music, to um, to all instruments, all voice, um, the process of creating music independently and collaboratively, um, and performance music as well. In terms of visual art, um, I'm attracted to, I mean, I like sculpture a lot. Um, I like art that makes me use a part of my mind that I don't use during the day. So things that are quote unquote useless that make you think about what is beauty, what is, um, what is the concept of disruption that makes you think about something outside of the day to day. Um, and I'm also really attracted to things that are created by people of color that can um, offer a different slant to traditional art. Yeah, so um, uh, I want to dig in a little bit on the processes. You, you mentioned that you're a flautist, and also, um, uh, as I mentioned, um, uh, your writing uh, attracted me too, but the power with, with, within that. For you, can, can you get into just the, the basics of what those processes did for you? And by process, I mean the process of producing music mm -hmm. and your process of producing words on a page and connecting mm -hmm. those as a piece of writing. Sure. Um, the process of becoming a musician or someone who played music was really transformative for me. I picked it up in middle school and, I mean, right off top, doing something that I wasn't immediately good at was awesome. It was great learning for me. Um, I was the kind of student that was just really um, not challenged enough in a traditional public school setting. So picking up an instrument, I learned about what practice is, right? You have to practice to get better. You have to practice to be able to rehearse with the team um, or an orchestra. And I really benefited from having to learn to be good at something, uh, first and foremost. After that, um, the expression piece around it. So. I said earlier I was navigating worlds in two different languages. Um, but by the time I was in high school, I added a third to that. I went to a French high school. So music was the universal language where I could find a way to express any emotion in a way that any human could understand it. Um, so I really was gravi gravitating to, to that. Um, and then also the process of making music with other people, whether it was in a chorus or an orchestra or um, a jazz band. the coming together and the weaving of the different sounds and um, you know solo music by itself is that interplay between silence and sound but when you add that to other people's sounds it's a really beautiful feeling of being in community in a unique way and it taught me a lot about collaboration and communication with others um, and I felt like I was uh, a part that really mattered of a greater whole. Yeah in 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 there's a big huge piece I hear in what you're talking about is is the connection in language mm -hmm, I mean if you're mm -hmm. talking Spanish English French but also you know music as a way of communicating Absolutely. those emotions um, did, did you feel did you feel you had a lot of power in having those languages and having those ways to connect and speak overall power yes and no I mean I think for me as a young woman of color I went to high school in San Francisco which you know at that time was rapidly becoming a majority white city, I didn't feel like I had a lot of power in my day-to-day -day life. Um, and in music, I wouldn't say that the feeling was so much power, but it was definitely an expression, right, a voice that laid the foundation for me then to later 
be able to to build on that as personal power and also collective power. Um, there's like practicing and becoming good at something and rehearsing with people. And then the performance aspect of it too, right? Sure. So p- performing and um, that really brought me out of my shell, right? I was a really shy and timid little girl. Uh, being able to perform as a soloist was a totally different challenge for me. And um, I had to fail multiple times before I actually felt comfortable doing it. And it set the stage for, for later on being able to take the stage metaphorically in different ways without having similar anxiety or panic around it. Um, so it was therapeutic for me in a lot of ways. It was skill building, but also very therapeutic on an emotional um, side as well. So what about your writing process? My writing process. Um, my writing really came about, I think, as a, a necessary uh, outlet. I'm a mother of two very small children. And when you're a mother and um, a single mother especially, you have this experience where you're sometimes, I mean, I live by myself, so I'm sometimes like, captive in my own home, right? I can't really leave when my kids are sleeping. I can't really leave easily, especially when they were babies. Um, So when I wanted to do art, I couldn't play music because I would wake them up or I had my neighbors in my apartment complex, I would wake them up. So what could I do that was artistic that was also silent and didn't require me to leave the house, right? Um, It was writing. And I would write to uh, journal out some of the things that was happening in my day and try to make sense around what is this life of mothering, but also analyzing and adding some understanding to what was a whole different world that no schooling or no formal education could have ever prepared me for. Um, Mothering has been the hardest thing I've ever done and writing has helped me put some sense to it, uh, surface some deep problems in the way we treat mothers and mothering in our society um, and document, right? I'm going to be able to look back when my kids are older and and have a glimpse into what I was feeling and um, hopefully be able to offer some support and some camaraderie to other mothers in other parts of the world that are also going through what I'm going through um, and may not um, be able to leave their homes either to have a, a collective meetup. So it's a way to communicate with other people um, when, when you're kind of stuck in where, the place that you are. Your role as a mother is really important um, in uh, just things that I've, you know, things that I've seen you communicate. And um, my question is this, is do you, do you ever get frustrated? Um, it seems so fundamental, a lot of things that mothers have to deal with, mm-hmm. and mothers have been around forever. And, um, you know, it seems intuitive that we need to care for, you know, mothers mm-hmm. and families. And that's a part of your politics. I mm-hmm. mean, do you ever get frustrated that you kind of have to, like, keep saying that type of thing? Let's pay attention to moms in, in, in families. What's, what's your experience in, in, in advocating in that way? I'm an advocate in my day-to-day life. I um, I don't get tired of it or frustrated necessarily. I think I understand that the process through which you bring about change is by that constant repetition, right? That organizing requires some level of being comfortable with saying the same or similar things over and over to people wherever they are, meeting them where they are. Um, but for me, mothering, I mean, in some ways, it's the ultimate artwork, right? Like, what do you create? You create life. Um, and you nurture life and you raise life and it's been a portal um, blown wide open and I can't think of any other experience in my life that has transformed me so deeply. Um, so I talk about it a lot and you know I, I also I had children at an interesting time right I, I have friends in two different groups I have friends that are around my age but don't have kids yet or I have friends that are a lot older than me and have kids 
So um, in some ways, I'm either like preparing my peers who don't have kids yet and helping them understand what it's going to be like. And in other ways, um, I'm helping the friends that are um, that have kids that around my age that are older than me have a connection to um, like younger uh, lifestyles and having fun, not ha not feeling like you have to retire because you have kids. So I'm in between these two worlds. Um, but I definitely, um, I think it's important. I, I'm th I have a responsibility too because I'm raising two, uh, two boys or uh, children that currently identify as boys. And I know that it's my job to raise them to be um, anti-patriarchal, to raise them to understand and practice feminism. And if I don't do that by showing them, they're not going to ever actually understand or absorb that. So I have to show them uh, because they're going to learn to treat women and, and mothers and parents the way that I allow myself to be treated. So the more that I stand up for myself and, and call out uh, oppressions and call out injustices, the more they'll grow up and be able to see that and name that for themselves. Thank you. Um, uh, whether it's uh, whatever you're creating, have you ever asked yourself the question, why you create? And if not, I'm going to ask you it now. What? Why? Do, why do you create? Why do you? Mm -hmm. what do you is it a? Is it a, a drive or a need or is? In some ways, it's a need. I definitely feel like it's an outlet um, at some times where I can have an emotional peak and then I write it out and then I feel better afterwards. And also in other ways, it's an I am here sort of stamp, right? It's, it's especially the written word, um, although the same can be said, I think, of many oral traditions and, and music. But me documenting something in writing is me saying I was here and I was here at this time feeling this way, doing this thing offering this analysis um, and over time that aggregates into a body of work that um, I think women and people of color um, have often been excluded from that sort of quote-unquote legitimate uh, documented experience. You've studied uh, philosophy at the, at the university level. Right. Um, I've, I've studied uh, philosophy at the, at the university level. It's a, it's a great love of mine. Um, what what was that experience? What was that experience like for you? Uh -huh. um, like, yeah, I mean, how did you? I mean, a lot most most philosophers kind of just trip into it. They're like, I'm really interested in all these questions. Trip mm -hmm. into what? What was your experience studying philosophy? Yeah. Um, so I my degree's in philosophy with an emphasis in ethics, law, and value theory from USC. And really, I think I started college when I was 16 years old. In some ways, I was really not ready, and I was having a really hard time picking a major. I was just really indecisive and wanted to study everything and nothing at the same time. Um, and I ended up picking philosophy because for me, it was a way to study everything. <laughs> um, and you can apply philosophical thinking or you can apply um, philosophical analysis to, to everything. And I could be in a classroom and think about music or physics or... Uh, literature and apply a philosophical uh, lens to it. So it, it really fed my need to um, to be multidisciplinary. Uh, but it was challenging, right? Like I was at USC at the time, there was no person of color um, on the philosophy faculty. There was one woman um, whose like political leanings were more conservative, so I didn't really connect with her. So I was isolated um, even more intensely. USC as a whole was um, not very welcoming for uh, a low-income young woman of color like me. It's known as the University of Spoiled Children. 
Um, but then you go into the philosophy department and it's even more elitist and homogenous. Uh, but I really learned uh, how to tackle a piece of really dense literature or dense writing. And that's been one of the biggest payoffs for me is being able to then read pretty much anything and understand how to how to navigate my way through it. Um, and really being able to call out bullshit. Like that's been one of the biggest things for me in philosophy is being able to look at an argument, look at an idea and say, well, that's false, that's a fallacy, that doesn't make any sense. And it's been so useful for me because I can meet people intellectually um, and offer something that's that's valid, that's reasonable. And I sometimes think about this, this idea or this stereotype, right, of Latinas especially as being quote unquote hot-headed or being emotional. And I can be that and that's valid and that's okay. And I can also challenge any kind of argument you put before me. So in a lot of ways it was um, setting myself up to break stereotypes, even though I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah, I, um, a lot of your points as far as the discipline of philosophy and, and how it applies, I've, I've really looked at it the same way. I didn't um, you know, follow uh, an academic route. Um, uh, per se, but it is a special weapon, um, it is. and is, it definitely is. It, it's 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 a skill, and um, that that's a huge attraction uh, of it, you know, of it for me, and um, the applicability to you know realms of politics, mm-hmm. interpersonal dealings, absolutely calling out bullshit. Maybe yeah. that's like the tagline that's for really, philosophy. <laughs> I have a degree in being able to call out bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> that's my master's <laughs> degree. <laughs> I, you know, and, and it did very much feel like this infiltration process, right? Like I was salting the philosophy department. Like I really was going in there and be like, well, you're racist and you're like totally um, promoting views that are not inclusive. And um, in many other spheres of my life that I've gone into where I've been the only, quote unquote, the only person in the room, whether it's the only woman or woman of color or, or both, um, I think that it's been setting me up to be comfortable with being the odd one out. The, um, and that, that's a huge problem in, uh, in academics, of course, and it's a particular problem that I found um, in philosophy itself. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, when I was chatting with you about the, the concepts of popular philosophy and bringing mm-hmm, it to mm-hmm. the people and discussing these larger questions, I think um, many people kind of have false apprehension of what the discipline yeah, is yep. and that the thinkers that are part of the canon actually don't correspond to large segments of people um, that uh, impacts the you know the the connection of the discipline and the misunderstandings that arise yeah from that I think there's a lot of uh, fear that stems from just confusion and not really knowing what philosophy is as a discipline um, or being able to name where philosophy exists outside of a department within a university, right? Like, I, I find philosophy every day in my life in, in different art forms, um, in conversations. Uh, it, it exists everywhere, and everyone has some kind of ability in them to be philosophical. Um, but without having that language to go with it, people can feel like it's not for them. So... Um... While we're talking about theoretical philosophy, uh, I got a big question. What we started to talk about what art is, we're using that term. Mm-hmm. Um, what is art? Do you have a definition of art? Mm-hmm. What is art? Um, I don't. I don't have a definition per se. I, in some ways, think about art through a capitalistic lens, right, or an economic analysis lens where art is something that's not productive, right, that doesn't actually 
fulfill uh, productive or re reproductive labor functions in society. Uh, so it's something that's expressive. Um, Where does art fit in the system, right? right? I think it's very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, subversive, right? Because if you're creating and you're not, it's not something that you're being, uh, you can be paid to do it, but if you're creating and it's, not adding quote unquote like productive value to society then you're saying like being human being alive having a thriving existence to me is more than just my paid labor that upholds the system um, but i can also write a poem right um the whole bread and roses thing really speaks to me that as humans we have a right to not just have our material needs met but also our spiritual and emotional needs met and right now the system of capitalism doesn't provide for both so art is a way to reclaim power, reclaim space, and say, I get to say what I'm gonna do. And it's not dictated by bosses or by um, the owning class. Yeah, and I, I, I found that, you know, the, 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 that um, both philosophy itself and, and art, you know, the, the major problem you brought up from the beginning of how does it fit in, right? What is its value? You know, mm -hmm. can it be monetized? And I think that's a fundamental problem with philosophy, and it should be a problem with mm -hmm. it because it's, it's, it's questioning, and those questions can be right. threatening. And art um, within the capitalist society, I think, has to take a role, and I definitely see it in terms of where of what you're talking about by its very nature can be subversive because if a, if a piece of art doesn't have a value or hasn't been valued hasn't been marketed or shown to be able to be exchanged mm -hmm. then what is it and um i i think both the discipline and, and art itself kind of seem to fit into that um realm of like you know can this be monetized <laughs> what is its value when you say what was your reaction your particular reaction to when you told people you studied philosophy oh, right my, my reaction to their reaction or well just like, what how people reacted oh, to you when you reaction. had to say hey well, what are you doing what are you doing what are you studying oh, you're like yeah. i'm studying philosophy there what was, was a, yeah a lot of disbelief like wait what do you mean like no actually my major is my degrees in philosophy like people thought that i was I mean, I'll, I'll own also, I have some internalized elitism around it too, because I would say, yeah, I'm not, I didn't major in psych or poli-sci, like, you know, I, I, my degree's in philosophy, like, I had this kind of internalized view that um, having a hardcore humanities degree was somehow better, or that I worked harder for it, which was totally not, like, the case, but I thought that um, because it was rare for people to have philosophy degrees. And even now, like universities are closing down their philosophy departments because it was rare, it was more valuable. Um, and that's not necessarily true, right? Anyone who makes it through college can add whatever value they want to that experience and that to that degree. Um, but I definitely felt people were questioning whether I was telling the truth. And um, they were sometimes impressed and they're, being impressed was insulting, right? Um, because in one ways, it, it, it was an admission that when they looked at me or when they had experiences interacting with me that they didn't believe that I had credentials like that. Um, so I don't often like talking about it very much because it also gives people a perception um, that whether it's positive or negative, I'd rather them just judge me based on their interactions and experiences with me, based on what they think is on my resume or what they know is on my resume. Um, but it's, you know, I don't regret it. it. It was hard, but I, I've gotten a lot of value from it and not just in terms of like bragging rights, if any, but 
just being able to uh, defend myself in, in many forms. Um, but I also think that like philosophy, it taught me some activism too, right? Like my student activism also had to do with representation and racial justice in curriculum and in, in faculty. But um, I think related to the question of art, right? Is it quote unquote necessary or marketable or valuable. My family didn't know what the heck to do with a philosophy degree. Like they, they wanted me to go and be a doctor or engineer or whatever. Like I was a first generation college kid on at, at university on scholarship. Like they were beside themselves wondering how I was gonna get a job with a philosophy degree. And I totally understand that, right? Like for some people who are in that world of having to survive materially, it can seem like it's a waste or just, you know, nonsensical to have a degree like philosophy um, and like art I think it's a it's a reclamation of, of space and time and power but it also it, it can and does serve a purpose in in our current capitalist system in that it boosts morale right if people have something to look forward to in their lives that's artistic that's creative it's a reason to stay alive like that that really the therapeutic part of music for me for example when I was in middle school and high school, it definitely had a mental health benefit, a really positive one, where I felt like there was one thing in my life that I could do, that I could practice by myself and with other people that I looked forward to. And I didn't look forward to anything else in the rest of my day, right? So it was something that I could um, I could look for for my own sustainability, and that is productive in our society. I found that um, for music, it, it it's always, uh really intrigued me that a lot of people wouldn't you know say that they struggle with any mental health issues or mm -hmm. stress or anxiety will talk about the songs that save them or the mm. albums that save them and and just talking about um how folks would speak with strong statements around music or songs that help them get through those times mm -hmm. um that that save them um you know, that power both listening to and participating in it that way and also um, producing to them that the um, the process itself had such a had such a power um, yeah. of, of therapy. Um, I've had a lot of discussions with different types of artists uh, during the course of this uh, podcast. And I remember even particularly early on with um, the early episodes how prevalent that was mm -hmm. in talking about trauma and talking about what this process was um, uh, to, to help folks, um, to, you know, to help humans uh, get through things um, in, in art's place uh, in that. Um, I want to go back to just uh, if you could say a little bit more about um, uh, in, in your discussion about art within the capitalist system mm -hmm. and you know where where it stands and you know what what its value is um, I always find it very fascinating how the interconnection between art and politics mm -hmm. is described and I think in your answer it sounds to me that there's an, an inherent, a political dynamic to art that's produced uh, in in our system, but the questions for you: what what do you see as the interplay of an art piece and uh, politics, or the potential of that? Yeah, um, I mean, art, artivism. There's so much potential, and there's so much actual, like, real benefit to it. Um, 
in one sense as an organizing tool, right? Art can be used, any kind of cultural work can be used as a relationship building tool, as an organizing tool. It brings people together, it builds trust, it builds camaraderie. Um, so it's practical in that way. In other ways, art can help with the agitation process. It can help people uh, open their eyes and see injustice and oppressions and systems that are not fair in different ways. Um, I also think that art is fundamentally re-indigenizing because what we're doing is going back to very, very ancient um, non-Western practices around healing and sustaining life. I, I remember after I had my first kid, I was in New York, and one of my dear friends, um, who was a doula of mine also, was counseling me through like a you know particularly hard time postpartum, and she told me that um, there was an indigenous um, teaching or offering around when someone is sad or when someone is having a hard time, you ask four critical questions, and two of them were, when did you stop singing and when did you stop dancing? And that was, it hit me to my core because it was absolutely about art as something that you do to nurture life and, and sustain life, but also um, an expression that is in my DNA and my cells, going back to the way my ancestors chose to exist individually and collectively and how we've survived all these years. Um, so her, her sharing and offering that practice with me and, and helping me remember um, what's in my blood um, helped me see art in a different form as well. You talked about um, within writing uh, in, in that process what it does for you, but also that it was essentially an adaptation to being a mom in the space yeah. that you needed to mm -hmm. be able to um, create. If you, if, if you took that away, I mean, do you, do you see yourself, um, is there an ideal kind of like physical type of environment to create art that you would like or you think you would enjoy? Or do you just kind of not mind adapting to the, to the circumstances that are around you? Uh, I mean, the circumstances are part of the art, right? Like, if, if it weren't for the fact that, like, everything is messy and my kids won't go to bed and, you know, blah, 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 I wouldn't be inspired. I wouldn't have the need to create the art. Um, I wonder if I would even have the same thought process or the same um, writing uh, product in a super sterile, formal, cozy environment. I'm not sure about that. Um, I think that the, the right environment or the appropriate environment that's conducive to art is a space where the artist or the creator feels compelled and feels moved in some way. Um, that could be on the street, that could be in a classroom, that could be on a spaceship, like, you know, wherever the artist feels um, compelled to express and, and to create. And um, I, I don't think that there's I think that there is benefit to having, you know, like a gallery or some space, or a studio of some kind where people can go and um, have the, the dedicated time and space that they deserve to create their art, if that's what they feel like they need. Um, but for me, I think art can be created anywhere at any time. Um, and it is an adaptation for me that it just so happens to be um, for me around, around my kids' schedules in my own home. But I, I was writing before I was a mother too, you know, I think part of it came from just our, our formal schooling right now being very literary based and it being one of the tools that I was exposed to early on. So I was I was writing creative works um, long before, but it took a different direction after I became a mom for sure. Um, I asked two bigger theoretical questions uh, for the podcast. The first one was what is art? The other one is why is there something rather than nothing because of women <laughs> <laughs>
Tell I think, me more. Yeah, that, I mean, I, th I think those are, it's a false binary. I think that, the, I mean, you can't create or destroy anything. There's only transformation. And who are the ultimate and fundamental transformers? People who create other people. So whether it's, you know, a woman or any person who can become pregnant, right? Like that is the essential beginning of creation of life. That is something rather than nothing. But it also didn't come from nothing. It's just a transformation of energy, a transformation of food and water into a whole new person. So for me, I think connecting and validating women's work or the work of people who are choosing to engage in reproductive labor um, has been so undervalued and choosing to add value to it by saying that we are creating, we are artists, we are um, adding value and adding meaning to life in, in completely uh, valid ways um, is a way also to be subversive and is a way to call out patriarchy um, in many spheres of life. You, um, you, you active, have actively worked and have been, you know, in the political sphere and as, as a politician. Um, when, you're, when you're in that realm and you're operating in that realm, do you, see, do, do, you see, do you see art in that? Do you see art in as far as, like, you know, the campaign that you run or the kind of the visuals and presentation? Do you, do you see a nexus there? I totally do. I mean, I, I think I just have a really broad definition of art where I think art... I'm constantly weaving through my days. I'm, I'm creating uh, coalitions, I'm creating campaign plans, I'm creating networks and cohorts of peers. I'm, I'm creating, right, in the work that I'm doing every day. And there is an artistic element to it that complements the scientific side of it, right? Because there's, there's a science to the organizing too. There's a science to, um, you know, you know the, the data and the, um, the structure more or less that you're working with uh, for organizing and for nonprofit administration, but there's also your own personal flair to it and what you're seeing. That's for me, it's very intuitive based, right? And that's why I'm saying that for, it's very fundamentally feminist to me and it's um, reindignizing in that way because I'm using my distinctively non-cognitive self um, in creating that I've been more closely connected to since I've become a mother or that quote unquote gut that I'm trusting, that, that intuition um, is not as easily described, but it's very valid. It's a way of knowing, right? You don't have to think about epistemology. It's a way of knowing that's very feminist, where I'm saying I'm feeling out the vibes, I'm feeling out what I, what my intuition tells me is true about if this person met that person, that person could be a great campaign manager for them, or you know, this person should run for that office because my gut tells me that, that it's a good fit. And or I see that there's a problem that my intuition says, okay, don't work with that person, right? Or that funder is dangerous, stay away. You know, there's there's a lot of intuition that comes into play, and that's my artistic flair to it, where I'm I'm kind of the I'm steering my way the way like a river runs its course, right? Just kind of going with the flow. Um, that's a, a balance of the art and the science around it. Yeah, when you mentioned. Um about some of your experience and in, in connection to a doula with the birthing uh -huh. process. Um, I've had uh, with um, my kids, uh, two out of three were home births and mm -hmm. having a doula, I was <laughs> immediately thinking mm -hmm. about like Mine the art, yeah. like the oh, spiritual creative aspect of, of the birth. One of the most beautiful descriptions that I've ever heard about giving birth is that it's like going to that threshold between life and death and crossing over and bringing back life. 
And that to me connects to the question you asked earlier about what is art, what is something rather than nothing. And for me, that's something nothing, creating, not creating, is very much life and death correlated, right? What is, what is and what is not. Um, and the birthing process brought me super close to that in my body, the mothering process, nurturing my children, cooking for them, building a home for them, that's all extremely creative. Um, and it's, it's about that, uh, that decision to bring back life, to create life. Um, it's very empowering. Um, beautiful, deeply difficult, like <laughs> beautiful <laughs> things can be at times, but um, in a beautiful description, I can see why you um, connect to that. Um, uh, the, last, the last part here uh, is kind of like open, open for you, sure. like to, uh, it's like how can people connect with what you want what like what you're doing? Uh, so I have a some of my writing is online, um, but it's it's pretty. I don't know how to describe it. Um, I would say if people are interested in reading some of my random musings, they can find it online. Um, I have an Instagram. I have a Medium page that I do some random writing on as well. But I definitely don't make a commitment to like writing something every month or every week. I write as I'm inspired to and as I need to. Um, so if people are interested in reading, they can. But I also don't write to be read necessarily <laughs> or for a following. <laughs> um, I, I have been encouraged to share it because I think some people have found some value in it, but um, I also encourage people to write themselves, right? I think that I would be interested in reading um, people's writing or people's reflections on anything that I've talked about, especially around mothering, because I do think that writing should be uh, the beginning of a collaboration and not just a dumping, but something to, to build community from. Uh, Ana del Rocio, it's been a, a great pleasure to have you on the podcast, something rather than nothing. Um, really appreciate your time, and it's been a very stimulating um, a conversation. I very much look at, I look, I very much look forward to anything uh, that you create, and I'll certainly be looking for that. I appreciate that. Thanks for taking the time to interview. Thanks so much. You are listening to something rather than nothing.